BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV Network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. Ohio's Chamber of Commerce actually killed an anti-pollution bill of rights. I mean, this, this is a very, very consequential story. And I want to get, dig into this and figure out what happened and how and why. On the line with us is Marky Miller. Marky is an organizer with Toledoans for Safe Water. LakeErieAction.org is the website. And, of course, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, CELDF, C-E-L-D-F.org. The Twitter handle is Toledoans for SW, as in Safe Water. Marky, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us what the Lake Erie Bill of Rights is and how it came about? The Lake Erie Bill of Rights is a charter amendment that people in my community in Toledo, Ohio, wrote, put together, petitioned. We collected 10,500 signatures for it to say that Lake Erie has a right to exist and flourish and thrive. I mean, that was in response to a 2014 water crisis where we didn't have water for three days. We could not touch it. We could not bathe, could not drink, don't boil it. That happened very suddenly because of a a toxic algal bloom in the Western Basin. And for the year that followed, there was no action from our government. There was very little, you know, tangible actions that we saw coming out of any laws. And the people in my community got fed up with that. So we wanted to put a law together that we could start to protect ourselves, our community, and this ecosystem that sustains us. Wow. So what's the story of how the Chamber of Commerce killed this? Right. Well, we fought really hard to get on the ballot. We ended up having a special election in February of this year. And the Lake Erie Bill of Rights passed with 61% of the vote. Mm-hmm. It was immediately challenged by corporate agriculture, you know, a big ag operation. And, this is challenging court, uh, I assume. Yes, in, in yeah. federal court. Um, and so that that's ongoing. We knew that we had oil and gas campaigning against us. 
when we were getting to the ballot. And then we got word that the Ohio budget bill included provisions that revoked legal standing for nature and had direct language in there withdrawing rights of nature and removing that as an option across the state. Mm. Um, This was kind of a a sudden discovery because when we found out about it, we had a, a reporter kind of bring it to our attention. We tried to find it online and it was not even in the available public budget bill. So we had no idea where it came from, didn't know when it got put in there. There were no testimonies about it. And we ended up doing a public records request to find out which representative had even introduced this language. Nobody was owning up to it. Nobody wanted to take ownership of that. And we got back a series of emails that were sent to Representative uh, James Hoops from the Ohio Chamber of Commerce saying, hey, here's the language that we want put in. We know it's past the deadline, but we'd really appreciate if we could work with you on on getting this passed and saying that it was essential to what they wanted to accomplish and citing the Lake Erie Bill of Rights. That's pretty breathtaking. Has this become a partisan issue? I don't think so. I think it's this state representative is a Republican, right? Correct. Correct. But I don't think it's one party over the other that is either supportive or It's just corporate corruption, good old-fashioned corporate corruption. Right. This is the corporate state. This is what we're talking about, that when we say we want to start passing local laws that protect us and protect our environment, well, now we have to be obedient to these higher laws written by the state, and it comes down to, well, who's actually writing those? Because it doesn't seem to be the elected officials. It doesn't seem to be the people. Now it's corporate interests writing the laws and handing them to our electeds. Is there anything that can be done at this point? I mean, we're not going to stop what we're doing. I think, obviously, we're getting a reaction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're causing some agitation. And this is what you see in, in movements throughout history, that you can't back down and you need to keep pushing to say we want to expand rights we want to protect the rights of our communities the rights of people the rights of nature you know and and keep pushing we need more communities in other states to start pushing for more of these local initiatives and rights of nature initiatives so i i'm not sure what can be done about the exact budget bill i know putting that in the budget bill my understanding is a violation of that being a a single issue law. It doesn't. I don't think it really has a place mm-hmm. in that budget bill. But again, it comes down to what resources do the people have to take on those challenges. So, for me on the ground, it's going to be about continuing those confrontations so that our culture can start informing the laws that we want to see enforced. Yeah. Amen. And uh, the websites LakeErieAction.org and Seldef, CELDF.org uh, that, that have worked on this. Marky Miller, an organizer with Toledoans for Safe Water. Marky, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great speaking with you. David in Canterbury, Connecticut. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Taking my call. That was a very interesting young gal there. Yeah. We had a problem in our town with a power plant 
taking water out of a sacred Quinnebog River over here and then pouring back in the hot water and people got up against it. We, we didn't follow through. Once we went away, they, they, the select people in town passed it. They got their pipeline and uh, we went away and we should have been more sticking to it, you know. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, hey, if they change their tune, uh, give me a shout and let me know. I'd, I'd be fascinated to find oh, out. Oh, it's awful stuff, Tom. Yeah. It's, it's very visceral. Yeah, I get anyway, it. Anyway, well, thank you, yeah, Tom. Yeah, thank you, David. I appreciate the call. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Tom, I want to draw attention to a story that broke this past June that serves as a crucial backstory to this catastrophic burning down of the Amazon. Uh, first off, Ryan Grimm of The Intercept is urging pension funds and university endowments to divest from the Blackstone Investment Fund, given their major role in this destruction of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. But it's another Intercept reporter, Glenn Greenwald, who in June revealed the judicial collusion that led to the imprisonment of Lula da Silva, the ex-president and the Workers' Party candidate, who was 20 to 30 points ahead in every poll until he was thrown in jail. Democracy Now! did a great interview with Greenwald on June 12th titled, Secret Files Show How Brazil's Elites Jailed Former President yeah. Lula. And it's, and it's really worth uh, Googling it or looking it up or going it or whatever, because it's a, it's a pretty shocking interview. And it, yeah, and it's safe to assume, Tom, that with Lula in power rather than Bolsonaro, we wouldn't be seeing the Amazon in flames. Yeah, absolutely. But, Spot on, Jeff. Spot on. Thanks a lot for the call. Gabby in Yermo, California. Hey, Gabby, what's up? It's about the environment today. Sure. I'm doing fine, but our world's not right now. Yeah. Um, I like the moms of the ocean, the magnificent oceanic mammals. Mm. People, I don't know if they understand that when they say the plastics are killing our animals, Animals are dying feeling as if they're full, but they're filled with plastics. Right. You can look on the, it was on, I believe, 60 Minutes, too. The birds were basically dead with lids inside their bodies because they decomposed there. And this is right off Hawaii. Yeah. And the animals are dying. And I wanted to know all the like specialists and all the experts on the environment and climate scientists say, hey, it's we've got to change this and then there's one or two that say they don't when did we start listening to that one out of five dentists about flossing our teeth right that's right. what that i'm serious yeah. I, no, I, I, I agree with you you know it's, it's if you went to a hundred different doctors and every single one of them except for one told you that you needed heart surgery and the one said oh yeah right. just take vitamin e whose advice are you going to follow i'm with you and the good news is that for example marriott and i believe the company that owns holiday in chain just announced that they're no longer going to use little plastic bottles in their hotels because they're literally okay. throwing away like millions a year these little tiny plastic bottles and they're right. going to go to you know dispensers inside the showers where you just you know squirt some in your hand out of the dispenser which is great it's going to probably save them a lot of money but more importantly it's going to save a lot of plastic. The thing, though, if we really want as a world to create corporate incentives to diminish the amount of plastic that we're consuming, whether it's plastic water bottles, which are bad for you because you get thousands of particles, microparticles of plastic in, you know, in the water that you drink mm-hmm. and then it ends up in your liver and kidneys, or whether it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, the wrapping or whether it's plastic bags or whatever it may be, plastic is cheap because oil is cheap. We need to put right. a tax on carbon and the tax on carbon needs to extend beyond just fossil fuels it needs to extend to products that contain carbon that are made from fossil fuels like plastics the biodegradable types of plastics that are out there that that work just fine thank you very much they're just a little bit more expensive are made out of corn typically they're made out of plants 
and they break down in the environment over time. But you know, over a relatively short period of time, over a number of years. But these these you know plastic that'll last you know a hundred thousand years or ten thousand years in the environment, and it doesn't break down. It just degrades into smaller and smaller particles that become more and more destructive to life forms, ending up in the in the vitreous liquid in eyeballs of some animals and and maybe us even. I mean, it's just all over. You know, we need to do something about this. And, and it seems like, a, you know, the, the really not to sound too much like Milton Friedman, but the really easy way to do this would be to tax carbon and tax exactly. t- tax carbon comprehensively. So, Gabby, I'm with you 100 percent. Thank you. And you're welcome. And th- <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the call. And I think you've nailed it. I, I really do. Our guest today is Timothy Wise. He is an author. His most recent book, Eating Tomorrow, from New Press. He's the director of the Land and Food Rights Program at the Small Planet Institute in Cambridge. Smallplanet.org is the website. You can tweet him at Timothy A. Wise. Ranchers and farmers are setting fire to parts of the Amazon to clear land for cattle and soybeans. It kind of illustrates the dire warnings in the UN's report on climate change and land. And in this book, Eating Tomorrow, Timothy Wise talks about how current agricultural processes around the world are basically destroying our planet. Timothy, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. What are the UN and IPCC reports saying about the rise of world hunger in our food systems? Well, what the most recent report on climate change and land focuses on is um, the contributions of our food systems and of agriculture generally to the climate crisis. And that involves everything from deforestation, like we're seeing in Brazil, from the pressures and the incentives to grow more corn, soybeans, cattle, and then the contributions to greenhouse gases from agricultural practices that are fossil fuel intensive, Uh, Chemical fertilizers are made from fossil fuels and that are undermining the natural resource base on which future food production depends. So why in the face of this is the U.S. actually expanding and exporting chemical intensive agriculture? And what's the difference between companies in the U.S.? And I I realize Monsanto has been sold to a German company, Bayer, but companies based in the U.S., shall we say, or companies operating out of the U.S., they're corporate evangelism, essentially, for this. And what role is the U.S. federal government playing in promoting this kind of agriculture? Well, the federal government for a long time, along with almost all other international institutions from the U.N. agencies on down, has been promoting the the quote-unquote modernization of agriculture. And the modernization of agriculture is really a recipe to turn the world into a replica of what the United States has done, eliminating almost all small farms, industrializing the agricultural system, moving people off the land with machinery and and other technologies. And it's just inappropriate technology for the rest of the world because most of the world is fed by small-scale farmers. 70% of the food consumed in developing countries where hunger is still quite prevalent is provided by people in those countries, and the majority of that is provided by small-scale farmers. I see that some of these fossil fuel companies or these companies that are making these chemicals out of fossil fuels are claiming that it is, quote, climate smart using fossil fuel-derived fertilizers and things and pesticides and herbicides. Tell me about that. Well, that's one of the smoke screens that's come up, what people call greenwashing. What they're saying isn't completely false. It's that their practices are so damaging now that 
you can tweak those practices to make them a little less damaging. So climate smart is anything that makes it a little less damaging. An example would be using no-till agriculture, which means you don't plow every year. And that means you have weed problems. So Monsanto has the answer for that. Um, It's called Roundup. And it means you can plant vast swaths of, I mean, thousands of acres at a time of industrial soybeans and douse them with Roundup. And you're going to get credit in this system for being climate smart because you're not tilling the land to remove weeds in between your harvests. That's amazing. It's, there's nothing climate smart about it. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the role of commercially developed hybrid and particularly GMO seeds what, and, and this kind of monoculture. You, you talked about thousands of acres of soybeans. What impact does monoculture like that have and how is that impact either mitigated or made worse by the use of GMO products? The big issue with hybrid corn for developing country farmers in particular is that they have to buy it every year. Most farmers in a place like Africa, in a continent like Africa, save their seeds from year to year and replant them. And the strategy of the seed companies and the governments and the Gates Foundation and groups like the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa have put in place all of these incentives to try to pressure farmers to give up their seed savings, give up their traditional practices of of using seeds, and buy commercial seeds every year. And, of course, those commercial seeds come as a technology package with commercial fertilizers, and that vastly expands the market for uh, Monsanto, the fertilizer companies, and the rest. And herbicides, Um, too. And herbicides, too. And the addition of GMOs, makes it far more complicated. Most of Africa still rejects GMOs, particularly for food crops. So that's a good thing, but that's the last frontiers that the seed and chemical companies want to conquer. And that's why they're so intent on opening up Africa to the seed giants and the chemical giants. Amazing. And the GMOs. To what extent do trade agreements like NAFTA impact all this? Well, NAFTA and other trade agreements are all about empowering multinational firms to trade internationally and to operate internationally. That includes exporting their seeds, but it also includes exporting their crops. So developing countries by and large, I mean, developed countries by and large, with the exception of maybe Brazil and Argentina, are the main providers of basic agricultural commodities like corn and soybeans. And trade agreements open up developing countries to those imports. Those imports come in particularly cheap Um, because we overproduce them and we subsidize them. And that's called agricultural dumping when a product is exported at below what it costs to produce it. We've been doing that for years and years, with a few exceptional years when prices were high. Isn't this how we wiped out all these Mexican subsistence farmers, for example? Exactly. I mean, a study that we did of the first nine years of NAFTA showed that U.S. corn exports to Mexico went up more than 400%. They were going into Mexico at a 20% below what it cost to produce the corn. And that prices that Mexican farmers could get for their corn went down 66%. Yeah, which... which, just a shocking blow. Which just devastated the the Mexican agricultural sector, the small farming sector. No, and that's, it's, uh, it created an absolute rural crisis. The majority of people in rural areas live in poverty. 
Yeah, yeah. So what do we do about this? I mean, is it the AgBiz lobby, the, the chemical lobby? I know here in the United States, our Supreme Court has said that basically, you know, these corporations are persons and that they have under the First Amendment the right to own their own politicians and frankly to say anything to influence the public. I don't believe that they have, that corporations have that much power in a lot of European countries. How do we push back against this? And, and to what extent is this just, you know, corporate lobbying and, and capture of the political sphere? No, I mean, I saw it everywhere I went for this book. I studied the United States, India, Mexico, and three countries in Southern Africa. And everywhere I went, I saw how agribusiness firms had largely hijacked the policy process to tailor policies in their favor. That's everything from a former Monsanto official actually drafting Malawi's seed policy and doing so in a way that would have made it, initially at least in his first draft, illegal for farmers to save, exchange, and sell their seeds. So what do they have to do? They have to buy from Monsanto, which controls 50% of the commercial corn seed market. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is about reigning in the, the agribusiness giants, and certainly in the United States, that involves getting money out of politics as best we can. That's a difficult task, but people don't realize how much the agribusiness lobby, and it's a mistake to call it the farm lobby because it's really not lobbying for farmers. It's lobbying for corporations. They spend more than the defense industry does in Washington on lobbying. Yeah, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Timothy Wise, he's the author of Eating Tomorrow. It's from New Press and the director of the Land and Food Rights Program at the Small Planet Institute. Timothy, thanks so much for dropping by today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It's been great talking with you, I, I, and I truly appreciate it. I mean, this, this work is like really seriously important stuff, and we need to be paying really good attention to it. It not only has to do with the future of our climate and the future of our food, but it's intrinsic to the whole issue of democracy. Um, so, you know, check it out. You can go to smallplanet.org for more information. Picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, under eye bags. Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like me only years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is, Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code TOM at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our selection today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. This is from chapter one. It's about halfway through the chapter. He's talking about Bernard DeVoto. DeVoto was the first major historian of the West who was also an environmentalist and an activist. The first chronicler of what Wallace Stenger called the West's curious desire to rape itself. DeVoto was a Westerner raised in Utah. He suffered in the provincialism and intolerance of Mormon country, 
went east to study and then teach at Harvard, settled in Cambridge, but never forgot the beauty of his native ground. Loving the land and history, said a magazine profile, but loathing the society. His histories, novels, criticism, his essays in Harper's Magazine, where for 20 years he wrote the oldest column in American journalism, Easy Chair, pointed always west. His trilogy, published in the 1940s, The Year of Decision Across the Wide Missouri and the Course of Empire, garnered the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award. Widely celebrated, Devoto used his position to become his generation's most outspoken defender of the public lands. He called the West a plundered province, a resource colony for corporations and absentee landlords who practiced, quote, an economy of liquidation. He was broad in his assault on the liquidators. He went after the timbermen, the mining companies, the stockmen, the cattle barons, the oilmen and gasmen, the overgrazers, the deforesters, the denuders, the profiteers of gold rushes and grass rushes. He named the bankers and congressmen who abetted the plundering, the western hogs, he called them. They'd been busy for a century laying waste to the West. Long before the public domain was vested with any permanence legally in the hands of the American people, before there was a consideration of the land itself or any environmental ethic, the West had been torn up, beaten down, subjected to the greed and profligacy of the commodity users. Ironically, the users in their race to liquidate helped drive the creation of the public land system we know today as they proved the need for federal stewardship to stop their abuses. Massive timber frauds in the 19th century, the largest land fraud seen in the West, led directly to the establishment of the Forest Service in the 20th century, its purpose to stop deforestation. Out-of-control cattle numbers in the steppe, overgrazing that turned the fragile soil to dust, led directly to the federal grazing regulatory system that eventually became the BLM. When in 1946 the commodity users conspired to destroy the public land system, the system in which devotos saw the only hope for Western conservation and preservation, he stood to oppose them. Quote, he was the first conservationist in nearly half a century, except for Franklin D. Roosevelt, to command a national audience, said Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a student of his at Harvard. No one did more in the post-war years to rouse public opinion against the spoilers than Devoto. Devoto and Schlesinger had seen firsthand what unregulated industry could wreak in the arid lands when they drove cross-country together in the spring of 1940 and entered western Kansas past the 100th meridian. These were the last years of the Dust Bowl before FDR's soil conservation programs and the return rains of the 40s could heal the land. Wrote Devoto, a cemetery was 10 inches deep in sand. Half the headstones had toppled into it and been partly covered. Sagging shacks that had been farmhouses had their windows blown out and dust was two or four or six feet deep against their western walls and a foot deep against the far wall. A repulsive dust as fine as sifted flour. Now, six years after that trip with Schlesinger, Devoto was confronted with the West's cattle barons, the liquidators of the grass, who were hell-bent on reducing the region to the same mess of dust. In 1946, the Joint Committee on Public Lands of the American National Livestock Association met in Salt Lake City to discuss the goal of undermining what few regulations had been placed on livestock operators under the newly formed Bureau of Land Management. The stock growers' ambition went further than mere deregulation. They hatched a plan, with the help of friends in Congress, to begin moving all federal land, the BLM and Forest Service domain, as well as the national parks, into the control of the states. 
The long-term plan, he said, was to get rid of the public lands altogether, to place the common possession of the American people into private hands. The livestock industry went on the attack, mounted a PR campaign to discredit DeVoto, and pressured Harper's to cease its support. Unmoved, the magazine continued for three years to publish his relentless exposés of the intrigues in the state houses and in the Western Caucus. DeVoto had convinced the editors, when no other publication that mattered in the East cared, that the threat of such land transfer was an existential one. This land by Christopher Ketchum. Tom Harbin here with you. The white supremacist movement and the white nationalist movement are starting to use the language of ecology to make white supremacy and white fascism appealing to young people who are inclined to be worried about the fate and future of the planet, which is pretty mind-boggling. That was an amazing conversation with, with, that we had with Dr. Mustafa Ali, as I recall. And then I asked the question, what do you think are the very worst policies that Donald Trump has pursued? And one of our callers pointed out all of these policies that Trump has pursued, whether it's putting children in cages, whether it's rolling back environmental protections, whether it's allowing polluters to dump more poisons into our rivers. This was you know, one of Trump's very first policies, in fact, was allowing them to dump coal waste back into our rivers so that people downstream could get arsenic in their drinking water all to increase the profits of, of the coal-fired power plants and the, you know, the coal industry. Whether it's selling off public lands for pennies on the dollar to the fossil fuel industry, whether it's putting lobbyists in as the heads of these agencies, whether it's promoting racial strife in the United States, whether it's activating the Nazis, the neo-Nazis, and, and these other snowflakes who, who you know, strut around in public with you know, weird hairdos and funny clothing. I mean, you know, activating the incels. You know, these are all Republican policies. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for hearing me again. Sure. It's on your mind. We're here in northeastern Oklahoma. It's a beautiful part of the country. Green, rolling hills. We've got rocky streams. we got big chicken house investments coming in from China. Mm-hmm. They're affecting U.S. corporations. Farmers are selling out. And, and and making a buck, a few, not many, but it's ruining the environment down here. It was just another thing, other than the nuclear industry, that will ruin your land. Yeah, this is what North Carolina went through with the hog industry 20 years ago. Right. Well, it's happening here, and it's been happening for two or three decades, and it keeps getting covered up. And we had an AG a while back who ran for governor last time. And uh, he lost the governor's race, but he was AG, and he he sued Arkansas over this whole matter of chicken, basically chicken coming oh, down. Oh, you can't say that word, Bob, on the air. I'm I, I'm sorry, but I, I hope we dumped that. Thank you, thank you, Sean, for for and Nate for killing that. In any case, to the essence of what Bob was talking about, these factory farms are spreading across the United States, and yes, some of them are owned by the Chinese. Chinese import massive quantities of both pork and chicken from the United States. Anyhow, David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? I think there's a core problem here, and that would be 
when they uh, when the media can't uh, uh, doesn't want to lie to your face because of pushback. What they do is they lie by omission and don't cover the, the story at all. Mm. And I think it's a dumbing down of this entire country. All you have to do is watch the commercials on TV to see how far we've slipped. Yeah, well, all you have to do is watch the so-called news. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's stuff yeah. going on all over the world that is of major consequence, and not the least of which is that, you know, we just had what's probably going to end up to be hundreds of thousands of people die, and certainly billions of dollars worth of property damage in the Bahamas as a consequence of a climate change, climate disruption-fueled hurricane. And it's... Well, this is going to kill us all, though, it's in the end, if we allow this to go on. And, you know that the left-leaning MSNBC is guilty of this also. Yeah, no, this is, this is a problem right across the board with the media. And, uh, David, as well, I said, I think this is because the Republicans, as to a person, deny climate change. This is an entire political party. It's a political party that goes back 150 years or more. And this this political party is saying, no, there's no such thing as climate change. Uh, you know, Robbie pointed oh, out Bolsonaro, but I'm, I don't know that there's an entire political party in Brazil that's denying climate change or anywhere else, to the best of my knowledge. I've seen this at least a half a dozen times in different places that the Republican Party in the United States is literally the only political party in the world that takes this position. And I, I'm inclined to believe it. Hey, John, you're on the air. What's up? Uh, I got a T-shirt here that says, suddenly in an instant, this is Isaiah 29.6, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and with earthquakes and great noise, with windstorms and with tempests, which is hurricanes and flames of devouring fire. That's in Isaiah 29.6. Yeah. So you think you think you think that that we're living in the end times? Is that your take on this? We're not living in the end times. This is a wake up notice. Mm -hmm. Climate change is a wake up, and the people that deny it are antichrist, uh, even if they call themselves Christians. Okay, I'm uh, you know I I am not disagreeing with you uh, at all, Gary in Chicago. Hey, Gary, what's up? Well, this is about climate change prophecy coming true. Okay. This is this is Second Peter three. It says the world will end by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. World is ending by fire. California wildfires year after year after year. It's the worst one ever. Worst one ever. And then the elements melting in the heat is North Pole, South Pole. Oceans are rising. Okay. Even though these prophecies are coming true, evangelicals are following this particular verse in the Bible, Psalms twenty four one, which says. The earth is God's, and from that, they make a giant leap in, in wild logic, you know, thinking that God is just going to correct any kind of environmental mistakes we make. Okay, what they should be following is Genesis 1.28, when God gives dominion of the planet over to Adam and Eve, they're to be good stewards of the planet. And then when you put that together with Revelation 11.18, which says God will destroy those who destroy the planet, it's clear that God wants, you know, believers to take an active role in, in climate change. They should be planting trees in each other's yard. 
but they're you know they're not they're they're deniers you know and so boy uh, gary you have done a great job of pulling together I, in fact i was thinking about that uh, revelation 11 you know and, and i shall destroy those who destroy the earth uh, when you were talking and then boom you popped up with that too I wish there was some way for you, that it's one of the nicest, tightest, concisest summaries of why evangelicals should be worried about climate change and they should be on our side rather than Trump's side that I have heard. I don't know how to advise you to get it out there, but let me encourage you to, to do something. I don't know what exactly, but put up a website or create a really nice, tight little meme and start trying well, to get it going viral on Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, well, you know. Well, what they, want, what, they, what they want is they want to meet the Lord in the air. They want to be raptured. But what they should worry about is their children and their grandchildren. Yep. Even if they don't worry about their lives on earth, they should worry about them being saved. Okay, and that's what they should worry about. But no, they take it to a, you know, like a selfish thing. They want to, yeah. they want to meet no, the Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. Gary, get the message out, please. Thank you. I've got an important message for all my listeners. Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold Welcome back. Wow, a, a bunch of you know cool news out there. This is science news. The Hubble Space Telescope can see exoplanets. These are planets on distant stars as opposed to planets in our own solar system. They found one. This is uh, it's not much bigger than Earth. It's named K2-18b. It's 110 year light years away from Earth. It's in the constellation Leo and lies in the habitable zone around its star where liquid water could exist, and they've just found rain. It is raining on this planet. Woohoo! Amazing stuff. Now, if we can just survive as a species long enough to figure out, you know, how to check it out. Anyhow, to your calls, Adam in New Orleans. Hey, Adam, what's up? A question I've not heard addressed. The climate crisis proposals to date address half the problem. The crisis is going to destroy coastal cities with tens of millions displaced. Just reacting after the fact will result in avoidable death and misery. What's your plan to create new cities and expand existing cities when coastal cities are at high risk to go under? Wow. That's, that's a huge frame and a large question. And I would be surprised if any of the Democrats take that on, but it is something that we should be discussing. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, this is already happening in Miami Beach right now. And they've had to install millions and millions of dollars worth of pumps to pump water back out into the ocean. They're getting these so-called king tides. The streets are flooding on clear days where it hasn't rained just because of the tides. 
because the ocean is rising. And uh, as Greenland melts, it's going to start rising a whole heck of a lot faster. I, Antarctica is now starting to melt, too. It's happening more in the northern hemisphere than the southern. But excellent suggestion, Adam. Thank you very much. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's up? Well, I don't want to talk about the Amazon fire. I mean, yeah. we have 20% and the more oxygen come from this area. This is something that the United Nations get involved in. I mean, there has to be a U.N. security meeting because this is going to be affecting the war. You know, if there was a bomb going somewhere in one city, a nuclear bomb, they would have an emergency meeting. I don't understand why they didn't have an emergency meeting for this fire in Brazil. Yeah. Well, the, first of all, the 20 percent of the world's oxygen coming from the Amazon is overstated. The, the science shows that it's probably actually around 11 percent. And that's, okay. and that's cycling oxygen. So really the net contribution of the Amazon to uh, atmospheric carbon over the long term is, is close to zero because it is, it, mm. it's a huge carbon sink. It pulls carbon out of the atmosphere. And in mm. the process, takes that carbon in the form of carbon dioxide and then releases the oxygen molecules and hangs onto the carbon molecules as trees. So it's constantly cycling carbon out of the atmosphere and back oxygen back into the atmosphere, but it's also constantly decomposing. And when these trees break yeah. down and, you know, the organic matter gets eaten by bacteria and bugs and things, you know, much of it goes back into the atmosphere's carbon dioxide. So when the, when the Amazon is stable, it's not a net positive or a net negative with regard to the planet's oxygen. So if, if the entire Amazon burned, it wouldn't be, you know, most of, most of our oxygen is actually produced by the oceans, but it would be a problem, but it wouldn't be, you know, oh my God, we can't breathe anymore. But the bigger issue is that this massive carbon sink, this, this huge reservoir of biodiversity, there's a, over a million unique species that have been identified in the Amazon that are unique to the Amazon, to that rainforest, would be wiped out. And we've already seen, you know, massive species loss all over other continents, Europe, North America, as they've been deforested, as they, you know, it's just, you know, all kinds of things wiped out. And so there's just, you know, it's a disaster on a whole bunch of different levels. It's a huge carbon sink. I don't know how many hundreds of billions of tons of carbon are represented by the Amazon, but it's got to be huge. Thank you, Tom. Thank okay. you. Thanks a lot, Omar. Uh, good to hear from you. Warren, thanks a lot for the call. Carrie in uh, New Windsor, New York. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind? Hey, um, I was wondering if I didn't get to hear, I don't listen all the time, if you covered by any chance anything about Greta Thunberg coming to town. Oh, you know, I haven't talked about that much. And, and she is just such a rock star. I mean, her speech to the UN and all the work that she's been doing and now her speaking out about her own experience with Asperger's and how that's her superpower. I mean, that's just the coolest thing. I've been, my uh, book on ADHD just came out, Hunter in a Farmer's World, uh, you know, that says ADHD is not a disease. In fact, it can be an asset in a lot of circumstances. And now she's saying this about Asperger's. And I'm guessing that soon we're going to see books saying that about, you know, Aspies. And I, God bless her. And yeah, she took a, she took a sailing boat across the Atlantic and uh, she's now, uh, she's traveling around the U.S. right now, right? I heard on Democracy Now! that it was a yacht, so I looked into it, and I was like, wow, does that sound fancy smash? It doesn't seem like her style. It turns out she sailed across the Atlantic Ocean from Sweden, which is farther than from San Diego to New York, right. on a racing boat that was 60 feet long, which is less than two school buses, yep. <laughs> with a crew with her dad, 
in 15 days, and then she gets to New York, and they anchor on Coney Island, right? And they go through immigrations, and then they actually, like, step foot on in New York City in Vesey Street. And she's meeting with, like, all these people, and she's doing a speech, and she's totally funny and just spontaneous because, you know, people think, like, oh, it's all rehearsed, and her dad is giving her these speeches or whatever. Totally bullcrap because she just will speak and, like, you know, just, you know, spontaneous stuff. So anyway, I'd like to just say that I saw a couple of really, the, the way that these kids word stuff is so blunt and in your face. And then there's a global climate march coming on the 20th. So right. could I elaborate? I have it up on the computer. Sure. Go for it. Okay, cool. So one thing that she wrote, which was interesting because, okay, so she started this thing, not really her, but she protested in front of, uh, when she was 15, she, she stepped out of school for a few weeks and went in front of whatever her parliament is. No, I think it was every Friday. She was just standing by the street with a sign saying school strike for climate change. Exactly. So that started in like 200 countries, this thing called Future for Fridays right. or Fridays for Future. So she gets into town just in time in New York to join the Fridays for Future with everybody. And then at the end of the day, she writes something that says, I sometimes hear that my name or image is being used for commercial purposes. I have never given my consent to any company or organization to do so, nor am I interested in such collaborations in the future. If you see any such examples, please let me know. (laughs) Which I think is a classic. That's great. So then this other person writes the wording for the invitation for adults Mm-hmm. to join the climate, the massive global... If anyone wants to look it up, it's Global Climate Strike, and they can find the zip code that's closest to them. So she, so this other person, Holly Wildchild, writes, On September 20th, we are asking adults to join us. This is their chance to help fix the problem that the older generations have created. We don't want you to applaud us or to tell us that we're going to save the world. We want you to strike with us in September. So that's it, everybody. Yeah. Friday, September 20th, is New York City to you. Is there a, is there a particular website, Carrie, that you can direct people to for more information on this? Globalclimatestrike.net. Okay, cool. Thank you. Carrie, good on you. I, you. I appreciate the call. That's uh, great information. Thank you so much. Linda in California City. Uh, hey, Linda, what's up? I want to address messaging. The phrase climate change is too benign. We need to call it something more serious, like global climate disruption. Mm -hmm. I live in a red area of California, and I've tried to talk to lots of people out here about climate disruption and the horrors it could bring, and they don't get it. They they say things like, oh, climate has always changed. It's no big deal. They don't comprehend the severity. I think we need to change the brand, change the wording. Yeah, I I think climate climate disruption is a good one, too. The problem is the scientific community has not bought into that. The news media hasn't bought into that. Your point is really well taken, Linda, you know, and, and I completely agree with you. Thank you very much for the call. Very well said. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to answer the question that uh, I've been actually holding on to for about a year now. You asked this morning, why don't we hear from the corporate media 
any tie-in about or any mention about climate uh, change right. when we have these obvious events, okay? And I have a very simple answer. First of all, I still call it the oligarch media, which is a worthy thought. But the reason that they don't mention climate change is because our oligarch media are capitalism's mouthpiece. Capitalism equals climate degradation equals stockholder profits or losses. Naomi Klein covers this beautifully in her book, This Changes Everything. And uh, behind uh, Muhammad Ali, Naomi Klein is my 71-year-old number two life's hero. So oligarchs are not going to identify the processes by which they make their profits, and they therefore will, will control the words and the statements of the oligarch media. And it's really just as simple as that. Could be. Every I mean, you know, media, at least, at every, least until it reaches a crisis. I mean, look at the opioid crisis. It wasn't until, you know, what, 480,000 Americans have died from these products that we started looking at the Sackler family. That has not been politicized. I, I'm still convinced that if the Republican Party took the position that, hey, why do the Democrats want to take away your pain medications? that we probably wouldn't be having that debate. I really think it's the political piece of it, Robin. I, you know, I get the well, whole well, oligarch media. I'm, 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 I'm with you on that. But I think this right. goes beyond well, that. I, yeah, well, I, I think so. But I think the opioid thing is a little bit more narrow than the worldwide environmental collapse and the climate change. And again, it's the Republicans are the oligarchs, Tom. There's not many Democratic oligarchs, so we're really using different words to say the same thing. So yeah, maybe that's why, that's why two bits. So, well, maybe it's a matter of then redefining the Republican Party as the oligarchic party. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, how could it not be that, Tom? Yeah. How can it not be that? So it's exactly what it is. So let's consider rebranding the GOP grand oligarch party. <laughs> Robin, thanks a lot for the call. Yeah, yeah great Thank to hear you. from you. Bye. Sure. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You hear about it on the news. You see it in advertising. You read about it in the paper. You see websites devoted to it. It's CBD oil. And the best one in the market right now is New Leaf Naturals. Uh, it's from NewLeafNaturals.com. N-U-LeafNaturals. CBD oil doesn't get you high, so it's great for using, you know, if you want to use cannabinoids without having to deal with marijuana. It's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-LeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. And meanwhile, we learned this remarkable study from Scientific American. And I quote, you would have to eat twice as much broccoli today to get the same nutrients as a generation ago. This is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Quote, 
the level of every nutrient in almost every kind of food has fallen between 10 and 100 percent since 1975. An individual today would need to consume twice as much meat, three times as much fruit, and four to five times as many vegetables to obtain the same amount of minerals and trace elements available in those same foods in 1940. What's causing this? The use of what are called biocides, pesticides, antibiotics, fungicides, insecticides, has killed, basically, has killed our soil microorganisms. And thus, as a consequence, our soil is dead and those microorganisms help plants absorb these minerals. It's crazy. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Josh in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was so excited to hear the moderators bring up the Amazon forest fires and pointing to its connection to our diet. I think it may be the first time veganism was ever brought up in a presidential debate. But I was so disappointed with Cory Booker's response. He said no and then repeated the translation in Spanish, no, making a joke of it. Now, I don't know if he's just scared of Texas. Austin's a great vegan city, but he could have followed up with some information on how our diet does affect climate change or our health. He could have even brought up his own animal welfare plan, which is pretty extensive. Why do you think he fumbled this question? Because everybody from Rush Limbaugh to Donald Trump have been pounding on this idea that the Green New Deal and the Democrats more generally want to take away your light bulbs, your plastic straws, and your hamburgers. And this has been a problem in the Democratic Party for a long, long time. Republicans come out, they make outrageous claims. They used to do it just around the word liberal, for example. Democrats stopped using the word liberal from the middle of the Clinton administration right into the middle of the Bush administration. And then they kind of replaced it with progressive tentatively. It's this, you know, let's pussyfoot around. Let's be really, really careful. Let's be very cautious. And I agree with you. You know, Cory Booker had an opportunity to actually tell the truth about climate last night and say, yeah, the second, third or fourth leading cause of carbon emissions into the atmosphere is our agricultural system. Explicitly, I say third or fourth largest because if you identify animal agriculture, all agriculture might be the second or third, depending on whose numbers you're using. This is substantial. And he could have said, you know, you don't have to become a vegan like me. He could have said, you know, if you just take one meal a week and don't eat meat, you know, just have a vegetable based meal, one meal a week. If everybody in America did that, it would make a difference. He could have even said it would make a difference, but I don't plan to legislate it. But sure. right now, it's yeah. unfortunate. Meatless Mondays. The- I mean, Meatless Mondays right. are actually taking off, you know. And, and now you've got, you know, Burger King selling their Impossible Burger. And Del Taco has got, you know, Impossible Tacos. And the Impossible, of course, is the meatless hamburger replacement. And the other company, Beyond Meat, you know, their stock has just exploded. It's, you know, it's oh, going yeah. all over the place. And- and unfortunately, the headline on uh, Yahoo is Booker, a vegan on whether Americans should follow his diet. No. And Fox has a similar headline. And it's just unfortunate that he didn't take the opportunity to speak some truth. Yeah, I'm with you, Josh. Josh, thanks a lot for the call. Renard Loki is with us. Renard is the editor and environmental reporter with the Independent Media Institute, which also syndicates my work. When you read the articles that I've written on Salon or Alternet or Common Dreams or whatever, typically you'll see at the very end a tag to the Independent Media Institute. Renard is also a writer for them. And he's got a new piece out. It's the one I printed out. It's from Salon.com. It's titled, How Indigenous Peoples Won a Landmark Victory Protecting the Amazon from Oil Drilling. But it goes a lot deeper than that. Renard, welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate Th it. Thanks for joining us. Tell us the story. First of all, frame it. What is the situation before we get into how they tried to solve this problem? Okay, well, Ecuador, as you may know, sits on a lot of oil. It's their main export. It's basically an oil economy. In 2012, the Ecuadorian government met with indigenous community members in the Amazon forest about developing that land for oil and fossil fuel. Then in 2018, the government divided the rainforest into 16 different oil blocks and then listed it for sale in an international oil auction. That's when the Warani people, one of seven different indigenous uh, groups living there, sued the government for um, making faulty, uh, faulty consultations back in 2012. Those consultations mm. fall under what is known as free prior informed consent, FPIC, and it's guaranteed under international and national law in Ecuador. The, the judges decided last month that those consultations in 2012 were faulty, they were held in bad faith, the government basically tried to trick the indigenous people into thinking this was something good for them and did not give any indication about any environmental issues that could arise from oil development. So now, currently, that verdict temporarily and indefinitely disrupts the contemplated auctioning of over 7 million acres. It's around 12,500 square miles, roughly the size of Maryland. So it is a massive wow. a victory for not only the indigenous people in Ecuador, but also for indigenous people around the world who are facing up against governmental and fossil fuel industry interests trying to develop their land, whether it's for oil or for mining. Now, mind you, the government is appealing. And since my article was published, a, a, a date has been set for July 1st. So this is a developing story. So are they appealing to their equivalent of the Supreme Court or their equivalent of a circuit court? I mean, yeah, you know. I guess it's the equivalent of an appeals court uh, in Ecuador. But I don't know if they're going to be able to do it because uh, the, the Ecuador, as you may know, uh, made history in, 20, in 2008 when they rewrote their constitution, granting uh, nature rights. Right. So that hasn't been invoked, as far as I know, in, the, in, in this case, but it may be invoked later. So they might be facing a constitutional crisis on two fronts. One, that they did not give a free prior and informed consent to those indigenous groups. And two, that they might be uh, running afoul of the rights of nature. Yeah, that's this is this is all absolutely fascinating. Renard is uh, we're talking with Renard Loki, the uh, editor and environmental reporter with Independent Media, uh, about his article published over at Salon.com on Indigenous people winning this landmark victory to protect the Amazon from oil drilling. I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers are like, "Whoa, that's great information." Is there anything we should be doing or could be doing about this, or is this just you know? Uh, letting us know the kinds of ways that we can, or at least in Ecuador, that they're pushing back, indigenous people are pushing back against the oil industry. Actually, there is something we can do. The Warani, uh, the Warani group has started a global digital campaign, uh, mm. basically saying the Warani territory is not for sale. It's garnered currently over 100,000 signatures. 
And in recent days, more than 30,000 people sent emails to the president of Ecuador, Lenin Moreno, basically saying that you can't sell you can't sell the war on a territory. So it is a global campaign. And if your listeners are interested, they can look up look it up on Amazon Frontline. So that's the nonprofit organization based in California that has been working with the Warani on the ground in Ecuador and provided them with a lawyer, uh, Lina Maria Espinosa, who's been working very hard on this case. And one thing that your listeners... And if I, if I could, Bernard, what's their website? It's Amazon Frontlines. Dot org? Dot org, yeah. And is it Frontline or Frontlines? Uh, it is Amazon Frontlines, plural, dot O-R-G. Okay, so thank you. So there is a, a global a campaign there. And what your listeners should also know is that the global campaign is probably going to be a little more interesting right now because... Uh, in March, uh, Lenin Moreno, the president of Ecuador, signed a $4.2 billion loan agreement with the International Monetary Fund, part of which is earmarked for the energy sector. But the IMF managing director and chair, Christine Lagarde, said a key objective of this agreement is protecting, is, quote, protecting the poor and most vulnerable segments in society, unquote. So there is going to be a little bit of international uh, feel in looking into what they're doing with this money, and is it going to be earmarked for sustainable energy? Fascinating stuff. Earmarked for oil. So there is there's a lot of a lot of touch points here, and it crosses across the globe. That's fascinating. Bernard Loki, the article is over at Salon.com. He writes for the Independent Media Institute. The article is How Indigenous Peoples Won a Landmark Victory Protecting the Amazon from Oil Drilling. Bernard, thanks for dropping by today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking with you. Bernard Loki. Carrie in New Windsor, New York. Hey, Carrie, what's up? Hey, I have great news about um, Greta Thunberg in New York City and the Global Climate March coming up September 20th for the student strike. New York City schools are excusing all absences of students participating on Friday, September 20th. Students, is, I'm reading from the Twitter on Greta Thunberg's page. Students will need parental consent, and younger students can only leave school with a parent. Hmm. That's great. Is so, that uh, is that a yeah. Bill de Blasio directive, or is, is that, did, did that come directly from the schools, or what? Yes, it came directly from the schools, and right underneath that, it said, Mayor Bill de Blasio will be sharing guidance with the parents and educators and students on how they'll be able to participate. That's great. And so, yeah, like seconds later, I think the... You know, New York public school thing put that out. So, but if so, if folks want to act, so if they want to go next, it's one Friday from today. Right now, Greta mm-hmm. Thunberg with several hundred people in D.C. doing the Friday for Future thing, and yeah. next Friday it's globalclimatestrike.net. If folks want to go and participate, and then I don't know how much time you have, but I have two ways for people to act sooner than that if they want. Those are. Cory Booker is a vegan, just like Greta Thunberg, mm-hmm. so they can like choose for their very next meal to try not to eat any dead animals. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and then in the next couple of hours, there's a public comment period until the 16th for, to try to stop two pipelines in Appalachia and Virginia. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thanks a lot for all that, Carrie, and thanks for the heads up. And yeah, it's next Friday, so get ready. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.